Section 11 of G.K. Chesterton's Newspaper Columns, The New Witness, 1922. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. G.K. Chesterton's Newspaper Columns, The New Witness, 1922, by G.K. Chesterton. Section 11. At the Sign of the World's End, Two Letters on Socialism, by G.K. Chesterton. It is always well worthwhile to argue with socialists, especially when they are not politicians. I intend the comment as a compliment, and the further compliment is also due to them that socialists very seldom are politicians, though there are sometimes politicians who say they are socialists. But a man who is a socialist in private life, without much reference to what is called practical politics, is not only nearly always a sincere and high-minded man, but is generally a man who has reached his conclusion by a genuine and consistent course of disinterested thinking, and as he has reasoned himself into that position, he can be invited to reason himself out of it. In these few papers I have attempted to reason him out of it, but I will have nothing to do with any attempt to bully him out of it, to blare at him about Bolshevism and Red Revolution, or to pretend that all the nonsense is on his side. I know that when I was a socialist, I was not to be bullied in that fashion, and I give my opponents credit for having as much self-respect as myself, and very probably more. In this spirit, I should like to comment on two letters that have appeared in provincial papers with reference to the views I expressed here about the relations of socialism and pacificism, for they contain things which I think are at the back of the mind of many thoughtful theoretic socialists, particularly those scattered about among the ordinary hard-working population. One is a letter from a Bradford socialist and appeared in the Yorkshire Observer. The writer dissociated himself from complete pacificism in theory and also from Bolshevism in practice. He agrees with me in saying that revolutions are themselves wars, and therefore, if there are no democratic wars, there are no democratic revolutions. But he seems to maintain that no national wars are democratic wars, and that all national wars have had a capitalistic motive. Then he says, after all, Bolshevist is merely the Russian for majority, and Lenin and Trotsky are the leaders of the majority of Russians, while Foch and French, worthy generals though they be, were during the war but the minions of imperialism which constitutes the powerful minority. This seems to me a singular thing to say in a letter otherwise very sane, and a thing which seems on the face of it quite the reverse of the fact. It is much more certain that the majority of Frenchmen would be in favor of resisting Prussia than it has ever been that the majority of Russians are in favor of Trotsky and his dictatorship. One could only test the matter by a sort of hypothetical experiment. Suppose a man had gone through all the villages of the Vosges just before the war and said, we are going to fight the Germans. And suppose a man had gone through all the villages in the Caucasus just before the revolution and said, We are going to fight to establish the dictatorship of the proletariat and the assumption by the state of all the means of production, distribution, and exchange. To the French peasants, no doubt, the news would have been tragic, but to many of them inspiring and to nearly all of them unanswerable and unavoidable on the assumption of German aggression. To the Russian peasants, the news would have been unanswerable because it was unintelligible. So far from agreeing with it, they would hardly comprehend it enough to disagree. If you had told any group of poor people anywhere in France that Foch was a minion of imperialism because he wanted to drive the enemy out of the country, you would very probably have been torn in pieces. It is by no means so certain that every group in the vast and varied and bewildering continent called Russia would even now show such a sentiment on behalf of the Jews of Moscow. The support given to the Bolshevists is markedly less swift, spontaneous, and instinctive than his national support in a nation. It was only obtained by compromise and even surrender. 
Lenin's government secured the peasants only by promising to preserve the very private properties which had only existed to destroy. In short, peasants now support Bolshevists because Bolshevists no longer support Bolshevism. But it is perhaps needless on this point to answer the writer, since he had already answered himself. Only a few lines before he says it strikes him as a very curious thing that most workers of all lands will fight for king and country but will not fight for themselves. It may be a curious thing, but it seems a still more curious thing that anybody should first lament that national wars are popular and then go on immediately to say that they are not popular. Now when an intelligent man finds himself forced into such a contradiction, he ought to cast back and consider whether there is not something unsound or inconsistent in his assumptions. The assumption here is that the only evils which a populace can resent are economic evils, and it is neither self-evident nor sensible. Indeed, the point can be made plain by reference to another passage in the same letter. The writer agrees that all revolutions are wars, but seems to distinguish between revolutionary wars and national wars. Surely it may be further pointed out that there are such things as national revolutions. If the Italians rose against the Austrians, or the Irish against the English, or the Poles against the Russians, it certainly was not only because they had calculated their economic chances under the change. It was not because being a workman under one employer means so much wages, and under another employer more wages. It was because being a slave in the house of a stranger means having your life starved in every sense, and not only in the economic sense. It means that the manners and the laws and the language and the worship, and the very art and public ornament of the stranger, offend you when they are forced upon you. If the Mormons were established as conquerors and rulers of the English or the Irish, these peoples would not be discontented on merely economic grounds. Indeed, I have heard that the economic conditions of the Mormon states happen to be comparatively prosperous. But the people would not object to economic conditions. They would object to Mormons. That is the point about the popularity of patriotism, which puzzles my critic to the point of contradiction. A man is an Englishman about a thousand things. He is only a socialist about socialism. Nationality is not narrower than economics. It is wider than economics. I do not in the least mean that patriotism is the whole duty of man, any more than economic justice is the whole duty of man, though both are duties, and the latter one, which capitalism neglects and insults. But I do mean that a man's nation is a thing that means so many things to him that he has no time to count them when he is called upon to fight for them. If a man hears the news, the barbarians are burning your home, he does not disintegrate the word home into all its elements. He does not say, they are burning the green banisters and the watercolor sketch in the bedroom, also doubtless the cheap edition of Treasure Island, not to mention the geranium in the flower pot. He knows that a whole mode of life is in peril. That is what happens when aliens threaten a nation, and that is why most men will die for a flag. Now I not only admit, but have always warmly affirmed, that economic justice demands that the books and the potted geraniums should be much more equally distributed. But I am so revolutionary as to maintain that the poor man should own not only a flower pot, but a garden, not only the watercolor landscape, but the land. In short, I agree with the Russian peasants and therefore disagree with the Bolshevists. And this brings me to another letter on this point, which appeared in the Portsmouth Evening News, urging that it was the fault of the capitalist nations that the Bolshevists had to go to war. If this were true, it would not affect my point. The fight of the communists may have been forced on them by circumstances but it does not alter their mistake in having said they would not fight under any circumstances. But the correspondent offers an explanation which appears a little curious, saying that socialists are divided into Christians and non-Christians, and that only the non-Christians approve of any sort of fighting. 
It seems odd to make a generalization about Christians, which excludes all the great churches that claim to be Catholic and most of the sects that profess to be Protestant. But as a matter of fact, the absolute pacifist dogma I quoted, that no war, defensive or offensive, is justifiable, was quoted from a manifesto of the extreme group of French socialists, who are the last people in the world even to pretend to be Christians. If my critic told them that their disapproval of physical violence was due to their Christianity, I think their disapproval of physical violence would be put to a severe test. In point of fact, my experience, and I think most people's experience, is the other way. It is almost always a man who is not a Christian who reproaches the crusader with not being a Christian. I have quoted a passage from the French socialists, and it would be easy to quote 20 passages from the Russian socialists, most of whom were Jews. It is the same Russian Jews who were once pacifists in the most rigid fashion who are now militarists in the most ruthless fashion. That is the inconsistency which was the matter of my accusation, and I do not think it has been shaken. End of section 11.